This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. My Twitter is uh, Slater Radio uh, and phone number 1-888-900-3393. I want to start here. You want to talk about a uh, uncomfortable discussion that people in power do not want to have. This is it. So whenever there's a shooting, we do this whole thing where we talk about gun control for a week. And I don't mean me or us. I just mean the country, the media, politicians. We do this game where we talk about gun control for a week. And I I think we're pretty much past that. I mean, of course, you know, there's still pockets of it and some people still do and all that stuff. But um, I don't think anyone's really serious about their gun control discussions. I think we just got to go through the motions. And I don't think anyone's really serious because all of the necessary gun laws have been passed. They've all been passed. All the common sense gun measures have been passed at this point. So I think we're kind of past that. And then, uh, you know, last couple shootings, uh, people have been talking about mental health. Which is important. But I tend to agree with the professor from the Yale Medical School who wrote an editorial, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, I forget. And she said, if we eliminated all mental illness, it's all gone. No more mental illness, anyone. She said that would cut down on mass shootings by 4%. Which is good, right? But that's if we eliminated all mental illnesses, which is a fantasy. And then it would only reduce it by 40%, not 84%, 4%. So that's, that's part of it, but I don't even think that's quite it. So I'm just going to throw this out here. You know what? It's, it seems to me that there's a common thread across many of these shooters. Dads. Or, I should say, no dads. Lack of male role models. So you can dismiss this if you want. Totally fine. Um, I, I haven't heard this conversation much in this context. We talk a lot about lack of male role models when it comes to um, you know, inner city kids or whatever, but never when it applies to mass shootings. You know, CNN talked to the dad of the uh, most recent shooter in Oregon, and the dad said that the problem w- th- th- was that there's not enough uh, gun control, not enough legislation. His son owned how many guns? Eight guns, 12 guns, 20 guns, I don't know. And so the dad's saying the problem is there's not enough gun control, regulation, and legislation. And I'm listening to this interview, and I'm... I'm <laughs> thinking well hold first of all the interview was done outside of the dad's house in california the son's in oregon living with the mom family's divorced son lives with the mom mom's nowhere to be seen so we can we can talk about not enough gun control but if i may um perhaps not enough fathering Dad, nowhere to be seen in this in this person's picture. Same's true with the Charleston shooter. Same was true with the, the Batman movie theater shooter. I'm sure we can go back, and, and I bet that's the case with most all of them. The great Matt Walsh, he said, the president 
diligently counted how many guns the killers had in their homes, but failed to notice how many parents they had in their homes. We focus on on the shooter's ready access to guns, but I think it's worth considering the murderer's access to their own fathers. Maybe that played a role. Enough, some role, enough of a role that it, that it's worth chatting about, worth having a national conversation about. No, I, don't, I, I think we know it. It plays a big role. Now, of course, don't get me wrong. Every child of a divorced home isn't going to go kill people. Please, I think we're adult enough to have this conversation, right? But there's no doubt that broken families cause wounds in children. That uh, many of those wounds result in major behavioral problems, or I should say minor behavioral problems all the way to the, the most, the worst behavioral problem, which is what we saw in Oregon. So here's a couple facts just so you don't think I'm making this up. 64% of all suicides are people with, uh, that come from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children don't have dads. 85% of behavioral disorders, right? So we think that can be solved with, with a pill. No, it needs to be solved with dads. Think about that. 85% of behavioral disorders are on kids who don't have a dad at home. 85%. 80, 80% of rapists grew up in fatherless home, right? That's because these are, they're boys who grew up to be men who don't know how to treat women. They had no role models. So, so culture, they let culture and uh, decide or tell them what, how, what it means to be a man when it comes to treating women. 80% of rapists. Uh, 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 85% of kids in prison come from fatherless homes or kids in institutions, state institutions. 85%. Income means very little to these things, by the way. Income means very little. Even if you adjust for income, not, not that much of a determining factor, whether or not you're going to have behavioral disorders, you're going to be a, a rapist, a murderer, you're going to go to prison, you're going to be run away. Income, not a huge factor. It's a father in the home and, of course, a stable relationship. Now, this is the worst fact of all. If, if you agree that this is a potential issue, and I'd love to hear, if, I'd love to hear either an amen or, uh, Slater, I think you're off. I don't, I don't think it is a big issue. I'd, I'd love to hear either one. But if you do think it's a big issue and a big factor in mass shootings and, and things that don't make the news every day, this is the fact that, that is the most worrisome. 43% of kids live in a home without their fathers. 43%. Dad's not around. And I would say at least 10%. The dad may be home, but it's an unstable home in one way or the other, abuse, whatever that looks like. So I think it's fair to say that half, half of kids are growing up in fatherless homes. That can't be good. And it's true for girls, too. I focused on guys. It's true for girls. Girls who grow up without a dad, studies have shown, are more likely to have sex at a younger age and more often. Kids, male or female, without dads, are much more likely to be depressed or anxious into their 20s and well beyond. Is it true for everyone? No. no but uh, Well, yes. <laughs> yes, to an extent. I guarantee you everyone, and this, I, don't, I don't want to offend anyone with this, but uh, 
I, I hope we can be honest. I think pretty much anyone who comes from a broken home has some wound, some, some wound to, to an extent. And if you're perhaps someone who's already inclined to be bipolar, this, that, that, whatever, then this brokenness at home may not rear its ugly head for decades. But it's there, and in those very few people, it could perhaps lead them over the edge, where a father may be the thing that would have prevented it. So why do we need to talk about this? I want to have a better national conversation about fatherhood. What it means, what it looks like. Now, we're not waiting around for this. One of my favorite organizations here in San Diego is uh, Boys to Men. It's a mentoring program. Um, They work in our schools, and they take kids who are in middle school. That's where they start, middle school, because it's easier for middle school boys to change. And these boys, they start off angry. They're angry people because it's a defense mechanism for the hurt that they feel and they don't know how to express it so it comes out as anger and it takes male mentors mentors who have been there worked through it to give them hope so boys start out in this program angry even violent and by the end of the year the teacher doesn't even know who they are anymore totally different person because of this process that the boys to men program goes through more of that because who knows which of those boys, if they were not mentored properly, who knows which of those boys would have grown up to be a runaway, to have more behavioral disorders, to be suicidal, to be a rapist, to uh, join a gang, to drop out of high school and, and be on welfare the rest of their lives, to end up in some institution one way or the other, to go on a mass shooting. Who knows? That's the greatest preventative measure. I mean, we can talk about deterrence with guns, and we do, and we have. But I'd rather talk about deterrence with dads. And if not dads, then male mentors to stop it at the pass. That's the conversation I think is most important in the country. I read an article every couple days about um, suspending kids from school and how we shouldn't suspend black kids more than we suspend white kids. And should we be uh, suspending kids because that that we shouldn't at all because that uh, puts kids in the school to prison pipeline. You guys know there's a pipeline. There's a pipeline that exists. It goes right from your kid's school right to prison. And when you get suspended, then you get sucked into that pipeline. You end up right in prison. Nothing you can do about it. School to prison pipeline. You've heard it before. So we have this big debate on if we should suspend kids or how we should suspend them or we shouldn't suspend them at all. (laughs) And maybe we could talk more about that next. But I guarantee you the discipline problems are probably coming from kids who don't have a present dad at home. I guarantee it. 90% chance. So why do we not talk about this? Matt Walsh says there are two different types of solutions. There are solutions that are simple, but not easy. Simple solutions, not easy. So you want to lose weight? Very, very simple. Jog more. Go for a jog. Simple, not easy. And then there are solutions that are complicated, very complicated, but easy. Take a bunch of pills, right? Complicated. 
What kind of pills? How many pills? How often do I take these pills? What kind of crazy fad diet do I do with the pills? Right? All this. But it's easy. Complicated, but easy. So we, we like easy things. We like easy things, even if they're complicated. So when it comes to shooting, uh, it's a complicated solution. More gun laws, more mental health. We're going to arm teachers. What are all these things that, that we, we talk about. And, and we, we, think it's, uh, we think they're easy, right? Just pass a bill. We'll be done with it. I don't know. I think in reality, the simple thing is the answer. But it's the hardest. Dads. 1-800-760-KFMV. What do you think? Am I way off? Am I way off or is there something here? Let me ask you like this. What do you think is a bigger... How do, how do I word that? What's a bigger problem? How about that? What's a bigger problem? Ac- easy access to guns. Mental health issues. Lack of dads. That's what I'll ask. We'll put it like that. What's the bigger problem? Access to guns. Because if that's the biggest problem, then we need more gun control laws. Is mental health the biggest problem? Because if that's the biggest problem, then we need more, uh, I don't know, I don't even know. We got to change our mental health laws, HIPAA laws, more pills. I don't know. If dads are the biggest problem, well, then we got to start focusing on that instead. So what's the biggest problem? What's the biggest contributor to shootings and mass shootings? Access to guns, mental health, lack of dads. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders, 1-888-933-93. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Seattle School District is the worst when it comes to a thing called restorative justice. We talk about this from time to time. Restorative justice started because black kids were being suspended at higher rates than white kids. I don't have the numbers offhand. Apologies. But um, white kids are something like 56% of enrollment across the country. And they're, they're make up 35% of the kids who are suspended. Black kids are 16% of enrollment and 32% of those who are suspended. So still more white kids are suspended, but proportionately to enrollment, black kids are suspended uh, in a, a greater proportion. Anyway, the solution from our social justice warriors who run our education system naturally is to not suspend black kids anymore. Discipline is now graded on a curve. Can't discipline minority students. They know this. And they know that they can get away with anything. And that's been the result of restorative justice over the last couple of years. There was a school in L.A., uh, a district, where teachers, I think like 15 teachers, have filed hostile work environment complaints to the district and to the union. They're afraid to come to work. It's so dangerous. Because you're not allowed to discipline. One teacher says the thing that destroys a school the most is insubordination. It makes it impossible for teachers to run a classroom. If you ask a kid to be quiet and he tells you to shut the bleep up 
and then a dean comes in and takes him out for two minutes and then brings him back, and he does the same thing. You can't run a classroom like that. And this is the line I love the most from this teacher. She says, it elevates the rights of the disruptive students above the needs of their peers. You know who this hurts the most, this restorative justice approach? All the other students who are mostly a minority. Think about that, right? Imagine the scene. You got 30 kids in a classroom. 30 kids. Uh, We're in a minority district, so uh, all of them uh, black, whatever. Let's say 28 of those 30 want to learn. They want better for themselves. They want to go to college. 28 out of 30, but two of them have issues. They swear up a storm. They physically threaten the teacher. They bother the other students. They make it a zoo. We're now not allowed to discipline those kids because it's unfair. It's unfair. They stay in the classroom and continue to disrupt. Who loses? Who's worse off? So it's we're so focused on those two kids and, and what's th- their rights or whatever. So we let them stay and then we take away the right of the other 28 kids who just want to learn. This policy of restorative justice is uh, of not disciplining kids. It's not good for the kids who need disciplining, and it's terrible policy for the other kids who want to learn. San Diego Unified, that's Marnie Foster, president of the board. She's all about restorative justice the day, the day that the rest of the board started an investigation against her, an independent investigation. Uh, The board also issued a proclamation thanking her for the wonderful work she's done on restorative justice. And this is the key, serving minority students in the classroom. Is she? Because we just, we're just supposed to look at the two, let's say, black kids who are disrupting the class and think about their rights. But we're not supposed to look at the other 28 minority kids in the class and their rights being taken away. Meanwhile, and I'm not kidding, there's two elementary schools in Minnesota. I swear to you, I'm not kidding. They have hired a recess consultant. What? The company is called Playworks. And they say that recess can be more inclusive and beneficial to children if it's more structured. And ready? Oh, prepare yourself. And if phrases like, hey, you're out, are replaced with good job or nice try. Oh, could you imagine running around playing tag and it stands, or, or let's say dodgeball. Oh, it's a dodgeball, right? It's a dodgeball. You hit someone with a dodgeball right in the head. And instead of saying, you're out, you say, good job. <laughs> Yeah, that's not <laughs> condescending at all. <laughs> that's true. Good job, fatty. That's what kids are going to do now. Come on, kids are cruel. They're mean. Unless you teach them otherwise. But trying to say, uh, trying to change everything from, from, hey, you're out, which is the natural thing when you know, you're out, to nice try <laughs> or good job. Come on. Again, it goes back to what we were chatting about uh, last week. We are making kids. We're making it so kids are unable to solve conflict without an adult. And we're not giving them the freedom of unstructured play. Kids need unstructured play. They need to explore. They need to make up their own rules. They need to make up, uh, resolve their own conflicts. And to have a bunch of adults spend 20 minutes explaining the rules of a game that they made up does a terrible disservice to our kids. Anyway, I know that's a little bit of a tangent. The point is, the factor that most I'm not even going to say mass shooters. Most kids with discipline issues have in common. It's not mental health. That's too vague. 
It's like a father. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders, I, I want to um, I want to share something that happened on our local show uh, a couple days ago. Really, we don't need much context for this. It, it's it's all very self-explanatory and very nice. Um, I want to go right to it. We start off with Eddie's phone call, and then uh, Elena called in after Eddie. Enjoy. Eddie is in San Diego. How are you today, Eddie? Hey, hey, Mike. Hey, I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? Good, man. Good to talk to you as well. What's on your mind here? Hey, I was just listening to you and you were talking about the dad, you know, the breakdown of the family and what have you. And it's just a lot of truth in that uh, because it's not the guns that are really the problem. Uh, the problem is the people behind the guns. And I think that we're in a place uh, soon becoming morally bankrupt. I mean, we're, 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 we're at a place that we call them right, wrong, and wrong, right. And we will not do the things that are right. So it has a, a, a very devastating effect. You know, the shooting in uh, Oregon, uh, you know, there was a time that uh, we allowed prayer in school. In essence, God was watching the school. And we didn't really have these kind of incidents. So we allowed prayer to come out of school now in essence we put the devil at the door and then we expect good things to happen you know there's an old proverbial saying that if god doesn't watch the city then the watchman watches in vain and you just can't lock the devil up so i think we need to get back to some of those moral compasses that guided us for so long and really really kind of seek uh the favor of the lord in a lot of situations and yes the the uh physical part yeah we have to do but you can't just say okay we're going to take away all the guns and so then you have all these uh free gun zones and so you're just like bringing the fox and let him take the chickens and, yeah. <laughs> i mean i mean it's it just it's just not working like that. No. We see it's not working. No, and I love, I love what you said. Yeah, yeah. We'll take care of the physical stuff. We got to do that, no doubt about it. But man, let's talk about the spiritual stuff. Let's talk yeah, about the yeah, emotional man. stuff. Yeah, 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 for real. So for what? Real, so, man. so where? What? How do I word this? Um, when you were growing up, Eddie, uh, your parents, what was what was the important value that they instilled in you that you see were lacking today, perhaps? Well, for one thing, when I was growing up, I grew up in the fifties and the sixties. Uh, there was a sense, and I and I grew up in I grew up without a father. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was seven of us, and so, but we still grew up to have respect for each other, mm-hmm. have respect for the church, have respect for the matter of difference of opinion. It doesn't mean that I'm against you just because I don't believe like you, but I respect the way you believe. 
and 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 it was it was a time that we were friends. You know, we liked each other. You know, I I mean, I had white friends. I mean, I'm African American, but I had white friends. I had Hispanic friends. It wasn't this divisive culture that we live in now. We are very divided people now. Where did that come you from? You know, you well, you know, I'm I'm gonna tell you, man. Uh, the last six years. Uh, I'm going to say it like this. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Just like in church. As the pastor (laughs) goes, so goes the church. And the king has a lot of influence on the spirit of the nation. I remember the the march in Selma when Obama was there, Bush was there, uh, Bush's wife was there. Now, I know for a fact that Obama knew Bush was there. That would have been a very, very oh, powerful message if he'd have went over there and shook Bush's hand and stand toe to toe with him, man. You mean the Glenn Beck march? Yeah, months, you know, yeah, months, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but the the whole di- the dynamics that we're living in is a very divisive and is very it's a it's a the spirit that 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 seems to be ruling now. Is a spirit that emulates from the flesh. And the flesh cannot generate nothing but death. And that's all we really see. It's the spirit that gives life. It's the spirit that, that allows me and you to sit down and break bread together and, and me look at you as another human being because your blood can give me life and my blood can give you life. And I just don't buy the, 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 the attitude is that I know that life is not equal. And we know that. We, we know, like, some people are born in La Jolla, some people are born in, in the barrio. That's okay. I have no problem with that. But what is equal, you have 24 hours, and I have 24 hours. Yeah. Now, if I take my 24 hours and invest it and end up doing well, don't hate me because I'm doing well and you squandered your 24 hours. I'm not mad at Bill Gates. Who wants to work for somebody poor? I mean, I'll be I'll tell you, man, I just thought I'd just, man, drop, a, drop something in your spirit, man. You know, I, I listen to you quite a bit. I mean, I, I like your spiritual side uh, of you. Yeah, you, have, you have a really deep spiritual side of you. Uh, beyond all the politics and all the other things that go on, mm-hmm. the, the, the core, your core principles are definitely in line. Oh, man, come on, man. Let's do what's right. I appreciate that, Eddie. Let me ask you one last question here, sir, because it's been so good talking to you. I don't want to let you go now. Um, I want to ask you this twofold. You said uh, you talked about doing well. Are you doing well, and how do you, Eddie, define that? Well, I put it like this. Me being African-American, man, I'm really probably economically probably struggle, and that's okay. Because my doing well is not material because I am not trying to compete with the other other, other people. I'm just doing well spiritually. Because if I do well spiritually, the, the physical stuff, man, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I don't drive a new car. I'm driving a car. It doesn't <laughs> matter if I don't have a seven-bedroom house. I have a roof over my head. I don't have to have a whole ice uh, old refrigerator full of food, man, I'm eating every day. <laughs> so doing well transcends, because materialism is so overrated. Mm-hmm. It, it will not, put it like this, money, it may buy you pleasure, 
but it won't buy you happiness. Yep. It may buy you a house on Knob Hill, but it will not buy you a home. Oh, uh, Eddie, Eddie, I'll tell you, man, you made my day. Okay, man. You made my okay, day, man. man. Let's okay, uh, man. don't let this be the last time you call in. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I'll listen to you, and I'll, I'll call in. And and lastly, it's not the duration of life that counts. It's the dedication of life that was really count. It's what you do with your life while you're living. That is the greatest thing that you have, man. Is your character. That's uh, Eddie. That was Eddie yesterday. The next phone call we got, Elena. Wanted to share after Eddie's um, Eddie's beautiful words. I thought I had gotten the best news. I'm I'm a little emotional, so forgive me. I thought I'd gotten the best news this morning, which was that my PET scan yesterday had showed that the breast cancer that had metastasized a few years ago into my lungs hadn't spread, and that was certainly. Great news. Beautiful. It doesn't mean I'm in remission, but it hasn't spread. Wonderful news. Yeah, and I have a kind of cancer that they describe as indolent, which means very slow growing. Mm. So I have ne- in 12 years, I've had cancer. I've never had chemo. I've never had radiation. Really? Yeah. yeah. So, so how often do you go back to get it checked? Uh, six months. Okay, so every six months. So the last CAT scan hasn't spread at all? The last PET scan, which was yesterday, showed it hadn't spread at all. And I thought that was the best news that I could have possibly gotten all day until I heard Eddie. And Eddie, he just made my day. (laughs) Why? Why so, Elena? Why did Eddie make your day? Like Eddie, I'm not rich. I have a wonderful husband, almost 40 years uh, together, uh, married together. We have a wonderful son who's unfortunately in Kuwait, but you know, he's he's fine. Um, I have a wonderful family. We have wonderful friends. Like I said, we're not rich. We're, we have had a roof, always had a roof over our heads. Mm. We have always had food in our stomach. Like Eddie, I don't have a new car, but I love the car that I do have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, we can't vacation every year, but we try to... Like right now, I'm saving up for my dream trip. Where's that? Well, um, we, I'm, I'm, my husband and I are 68 years old, so I want to do this. You know, yeah. With the kind of health issues I have, I want to do this trip. Where do you want to go? Well, my husband's family is uh, in, um, from Italy, um, he, from the, the small town where uh, Mel Gibson shot uh, the film Passion of the Christ. Yeah. My mother and grandmother are from a small town in uh, Croatia called Split, and I've never been there, and I would really like to, like to see it. So that's we're saving up for that well, dream trip that we hope to take on our 40th wedding anniversary, which is about a year and a half away. Oh, tremendous. That sounds so, like such a bucket list item right there. This has been one of the best days other than my marriage and the birth of uh, our son. This has really been a wonderful day. Uh, Eddie, I love you, honey. I wish I I could hug you. But I I give you a hug over the phone. (laughs) I'm a first-time caller, Mike, and I really enjoy your show. Elena, you did. I'm sorry. I'm so emotional. No, you touched a lot of people right now, Elena. You touched a lot of people. Well, it was great talking to you, and thank you so much. You are So the reason I wanted to share both those again is Eddie picked up the phone. I don't know why. But he felt called to pick up the phone, dropped some wisdom on the radio, 
And look how it touched Elena's heart. And I want to share that just to prove to you the influence that you have. Eddie did not mean to touch Elena's heart like that. He did not mean to have that big of an influence on Elena's life, but he did. Because he took a risk, called into the radio, and that's it. Don't ever underestimate yourself and the influence you can have on other people. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Hey, Slater, Christmas. thank you for being here. Um, honestly, I will never forget the, those two phone calls there uh, from Eddie and Elena. I mean, first of all, Eddie's, Eddie's phone call was wonderful, start to finish. Um, but what really impacted me and it was meaningful to me about Eddie's phone call was the effect that it had on Elena. Because when Eddie picked up the phone, he didn't know who was listening. He didn't know what those people, whoever these people were listening, for instance, Elena, he didn't know what Elena was going through. He didn't know what Elena needed to hear. He just spoke from the heart. He spoke about what he thought was important to him at the moment. And look at what an effect that had on Elena and I'm sure many other people. And I, again, I just, I know I'm repeating myself, but I think that's so powerful. Um, the effect you can have on others and Eddie didn't even intend it and didn't even know it. And I'm so glad Elena called in and I hope Eddie was still listening. Um, and he could see what an effect he had. And, and my argument is that you have the same effect every single day. You know, I don't know if I have time here, but I wanted to share a quote from, um, the Pope, not the current Pope, but the Pope, uh, a couple of years back, uh, Pope John, the 23rd, he was the Pope from 1958 to 1963. And he was talking about the difference between, um, well, let me just read it here. I got time. Pope Pi- he said, Pope Pius XI uh, emphasized the fundamental opposition between communism and Christianity and made it clear that no Catholic could subscribe even to moderate socialism. And the reason is that socialism is founded on a doctrine of a human society, which is bounded by time and takes no account of any objective other than that of material well-being. Since, therefore, it proposes a form of social organization, blah, 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 uh, which, which aims solely at production, it places too severe a restraint on human liberty and at the same time flouting the true notion of social authority. I love that. Here is the Pope saying that uh, socialism is all about materialism, which is so funny because the current Pope and others say that capitalism is all about materialism. But we've been saying for many weeks now, and please read by Arthur C. Brooks, The Conservative Heart. He explains this beautifully, that uh, progressives, the left, uh, Democrats, socialists, are materialists in their nature. Conservatives are moralists at our core. The left uh, couches their materialism in moralist language, you know, being compassionate, helping the poor, all the rest. And we couch our moralism in in uh, materialist terms, low taxes, low regulation, and people... I believe most American people are moralists, but they go to the people who use moralist terms. Unfortunately, they don't have moralist principles. Conservatives do. 
Anyway, here's the, the uh, Pope, uh, a couple of Popes ago, four Popes ago, saying that um, it's, the, it's the socialists who are materialists. Don't be, don't be fooled. Anyway, I share that, and we could do a longer segment on that, but I share that because that's the Pope, <laughs> and, and he's incredibly influential, but so are you. Maybe not to as many people, but as, as meaningful to certain people. And that's an incredible responsibility. And that's, that's one reason why I'm so glad we're here, that we can learn and we can be better um, and, and learn more uh, together. I mean, I guarantee you, if, if this doesn't sound, you're like, ah, Slater, that's not true. I'm not, I'm not meaningful to a lot of people. I guarantee you, Eddie didn't wake up this morning and said, you know what? I'm going to really touch Elena's heart and uh, I'm going to bring her to tears today. They don't even know each other. And look what he was able to do. And you're able to do the same thing. You don't know how, but um, because it happens when you least expect it. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. I've uh, been thinking a lot about the uh, the shooting in Oregon, and uh, we're learning you know more about what happened. Uh, apparently, the uh, gunman. Murder lined people up and went down the line asking uh, if you are a Christian. If the person said yes, then he shot them in the head. If they said no, then he shot them in the leg. By the way, if you want to know who the bravest person in America is, the bravest person in America was the second person who was asked if they're a Christian and said yes. After seeing what happened to the first person who said they were a Christian. Think about that. So you're the second person in line. All right, listen to this. You're the third person in line. Shooter goes down the line. First person, are you a Christian? They say yes, shoots him in the head. Second person, are you a Christian? No, shoots him in the leg. Then it comes to you. I think that's the bravest person. In America. The second person who said yes. And the third person, the fourth person, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth. Who all knew what their fate would be when they said they were Christians, but still said they were. It's pretty amazing. We'll talk later about, um, you know, the president says that these shootings happen more often than anywhere else in the developed world. That's, that's not true. Um, we'll talk later about gun-free zones and all that, but I want to go deeper. I want to talk about the culture of, of learned helplessness. This is what's so, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to put too much judgment on this, but of all the people who were in the room with the shooter, only one man, one person that we know of, that we know of, had the courage 
to fight the shooter. He was shot five times. But to me, isn't that better than doing nothing? Better than standing there and getting shot in the head? Now, again, I know it's very easy for me to judge. Completely understand this. I wasn't there. But when you have nothing to lose, isn't it interesting that only... Now, it's not only interesting that one person did it, but how about who that person was? That person, that one person who tried to attack the shooter? Army veteran. Service member. That was the one person. So when I say learned helplessness, when I'm going to make the argument here in a couple minutes that we have been deprogrammed to help ourselves. Here's one man, military, who has depro- been programmed to do something quite different in danger. When I say deprogrammed, um, you know, I was just reading this article from Drudge Report talking about these uh, college seminars, blah, blah, about women's whatever. And one of the professors says that the three most destructive words are be a man. Be a man. Now, I think one element of being a man is running toward danger to be proactive, right? Proactively protect yourselves or those others around you, right? The more vulnerable around you. Being a man is stepping up in those times, being courageous, being brave, and running toward danger. That's, I think that's a definition, one attribute of what it means to be a man. And here we have a culture that is actively saying that being a man is a destructive thing to say. And they're deprogramming what that means into something very, very different. Learned helplessness. I read a blog uh, this weekend. It's called uh, Declination. It's the name of the blog. And this person was critical of how adults tell kids to react to bullies at school. I want to throw this to you. How, how, do, how do you react? How do you tell your kids to react to bullies? Here's the advice from this therapist. Role play with your child on how he can stand up to a bully. Point out to your child that the bully wants to provoke a response that makes him feel powerful. So showing emotion and fighting back are exactly what the bully feeds off. Explain that while he can't control the bully, he can always control his own response. So in every interaction, how he responds will either inflame the situation or diffuse it. Your child needs to avoid getting hooked, no matter how mad the bully makes him. In other words, turn off your emotion. (laughs) Turn turn off your reaction. Uh, The best strategy is always to maintain one's own dignity and to let the bully maintain his dignity. In other words, not to attack or demean the other person. To do this, simply say something calm like, you know, I'm just going to ignore that comment. Or, I think I have something else to do right now. Or, No thank you to the bully. I don't know. That's that's not quite right, is it? I see what they're saying. You know, one way to, to take a bully's power away is to own the thing that you're being bullied about. It's like the scene from uh, Billy Madison. Where the kid, uh, I don't know how, how old the kid, how, what grade is he in Billy Madison when he goes to, uh, when the kid wets his pants? 
I'm going somewhere with this. Hang with me. Uh, fifth grade? Yeah, fifth, fifth fourth. Yeah. I'll look it up right now. Go with, Thank you. <laughs> Please Google that. Um, fifth grade. And the kid wets his pants on a field trip. And he's getting bullied about it. Bully starts to make fun of him. So Adam Sandler splashes water on his pants and says, Hey, guys, wetting your pants is the coolest. And Billy Matt, and the bully's like, oh, man, Billy wet his pants. Wetting, wetting your pants is awesome. Right? Takes away the power from the bully. That's not ignoring the bully. That's outsmarting the bully. Very different than just ignoring him. It's outsmarting them. That's how you take a bully's power away. But also sometimes that bully needs to be stood up to, right? That's how you make them feel less powerful. We've been fed this idea that all violence is evil. So fighting back is as great of a sin as the bully's initial sin. And I just don't think that's true. Leads us back to that high school in Los Angeles where the bully was punching a blind student in the head. And another kid came over and punched the bully in the face. Boom, one shot, he's down on the ground. And then immediately he went over to the blind kid and asked him if he's okay. Austin, you all right, buddy? You okay? Two kids threw punches. Are both of them guilty of sins? Well, in our culture today, yeah, both violated the zero tolerance policy. When in reality, the people who should be punished were the kids who stood by and did nothing. But we programmed kids to do nothing. The kid who should be punished is the kid who whipped out his video camera instead of stopping the bully from punching the blind student. I think of the uh, D.C. subway stabbing. Man on the, on the train, the 4th of July night, stabbed 46 times by a little guy. I think the guy who did the stabbing was like 5'6", 120 or something. Some like really small guy with a knife. No one did anything. No one did it. 46 times. It's a long time to get stabbed 46 times. No one did anything. The guy walked right off the train. A few years ago in um, uh, England, do you remember the, there was the Muslim guy who beheaded a British veteran in the middle of the street in broad daylight in front of a crowd of people? No one did anything. Nothing. That, that guy was out, outnumbered 20 to 1. What's going on? There was a shooting in uh, Los Angeles this weekend. Home invasion. Guy came in uh, in the kitchen. Man of the house. Family was there and everything. Man came down, saw the guy in the kitchen. The uh, robber started to attack him, so he shot him. The, the guy shot the invader. Invader died. Police chief came out and said, uh, "The man, or not police chief, but someone from the police department, said the man should have run and hide. He should have been hiding in the closet." What? Learned helplessness. We are being deprogrammed. Like your natural instinct is to be a man. But now we're being told, oh, that's a destructive thing. You know, you know what? You can't do that. And we're being told by superiors, by people who are supposedly there to keep us safe, that you should run in the closet and hide? Are you kidding me? What is going on? I think we first have to acknowledge that this is going on. <laughs> right? That, that we are being, I don't want to say purposefully or whatever, but intentionally programmed for something very different than who we are. There's one feminist guy on Twitter. He said, uh, the question is not how, uh, why are there so many mass shootings? The question is, why are there so many mass shootings committed by men? So his argument is masculinity is to blame for this. I think that is 180 degrees wrong. I think that's absolutely wrong. 
Masculinity is not to be blamed for these shootings. Lack of masculinity is to be blamed. These mass shootings, I believe, are a result of an insufficient amount of masculinity. Whether that means broken families, where men are not taking responsibility for raising their kids. I think uh, lack of masculinity with this the shooter themselves for not having a connection with society. And also the fact that no one in these schools are able or seemingly willing to do anything in the midst of shootings like this, except for one guy who, again, was in the Army, Army veteran. He was never deprogrammed, is what I'm trying to say. A culture of learned helplessness. I want to take a break. I want to come back and share a study that was done in, um, I'll look up the exact date. I think it was 65 or something like that. Um, It was a long time ago because it was a study where they shocked dogs. You can never do a study like that today. And I'll prove how this learned helplessness is really, really powerful. (laughs) Really strong force. And I think most people don't even recognize that um, we are the dogs in group three. That will make sense in a second here. But I'll end this segment with this. The shooter wants to be famous. They just want to be famous. They don't want to fight. They want to be famous. So there's two ways to stop this. Don't make them famous. As we talked about last week with the story of uh, Herodotus. Remember, he's the guy who wanted, to, who, burnt, who wanted to be famous, so he burned down the temple of Artemis. And not only was he executed, but the punishment for anyone mentioning his name was that they would be executed as well. You couldn't even mention the guy's name or else you were going to see the same fate as him. Herostratus was his name. Sorry, Herostratus. All right, so let's not mention the shooter's name. Let's celebrate the heroes of these stories instead of the villains. Okay, so now that that is a deterrence on the famous part. But also, they don't want to fight. So the best way to end these is to make them not successful, either with armed people nearby or a mob of people who have already made the decision that they are going to destroy you before you get any more shots off on any more innocent people. If you're going to shoot a classroom full of a group of men, you're not going to get many shots off, or or it's not going to be easy. And that message needs to be known. You want to know why there hasn't been another hijacking in America? I'll tell you exactly why. It's not TSA. Are you kidding me, TSA? You think it's TSA why there hasn't been another hijacking? You think it's for lack of trying? You think it's No, no, no. You think it's for lack of will. That's what I mean. You don't think Al-Qaeda anymore wants to hijack airplanes? No. The reason why there's no more hijackings, there hasn't been any more, and I don't think there will be for a long, long time, is because of what happened on United Three, United 93. These terrorists know now that the culture says if your plane is hijacked, the hijackers aren't just going to you know, fly to another airport and ransom for money. They're going to fly you into, a, uh, into an airplane or to a, uh, into a building. But you're not going to be successful because the people on that plane know that they're going to have to fight and they're willing to fight just like they were on United 93. That's why there hasn't been another hijacking. Because a culture has been established for what happens when a plane is hijacked. That culture needs to be established every other aspect of American life as well. Re-established, I should say. Because in Oregon, only one man, an Army veteran, charged the guy. I think that's a problem. 1-800-760-KFMB, 1-800-760-KFMB. Five three six two. Take your phone calls on this next. I'll share the uh, the, the story about uh, the, the uh, uh, what am I looking for study 
done on uh, learned helplessness, just how powerful this force really is. one 900 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Hey, Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. one 888 Kids are calling the counseling service more than ever, five times more than, or excuse me, twice as much as five years ago. And they're calling over the most foolish things. And the report said that kids have a lack of resilience, they're unable to solve their own problems, and they lack the desire to take risks. That's not a good sign for the future. These are kids at Boston College. $60,000 a year to go to this place. It's an elite school. And the kids there lack resilience, the ability to solve problems, and, and the ability to take a, the desire to take a risk. That's not good. That's learned helplessness. I want to share this experiment. It was done in 1967. I was off by two years. Uh, this is the four-minute version because that's all the time I have left. Um, so they took a group of... Or they took three groups of dogs. The dogs in group one, they put them in a harness for a little while. And then they took the harness off. That was it. So they're the control group. The dogs in group two, they were put into a harness and given an electric shock. And the only way to end the electric shock was to press a button. That was in their cage. And then the shocks would stop. The third group of dogs, they were given the electric shock. And no matter what they did, whether they pressed the button or pulled the lever or whatever, anything that was in the cage that they could do, whatever they did, the shocks continued. The shocks were inescapable for the dogs in group three. So they did this for a period of time for each of the the different dogs. Then the dogs were put in a new cage. Now, this cage, all they had to do to avoid the shocks was to jump over a a little, a a low barrier, a a partition, a tiny partition. All they did is just jump over. It wasn't even like, it wasn't a leap. It was just you got to step over it, basically. Now, the the dogs that were in the first group, right, the ones who were never shocked, they jumped right over the partition, no problem. Like, as soon as they were shocked, they were like, we're out of here. Jumped over the partition, that was it. The dogs in the second group, remember, they were the ones who, sh- who were shocked, but then they pressed the button to make it stop. So they were shocked, and they were like, I'm out of here. And they jumped right over the partition. The dogs in the third group, they were shocked. They laid down and whined. Not kidding. They laid down and they whimpered. They didn't even try to avoid the shocks. Because they learned, based on what happened before to them, they learned that no matter what they do, the shocks will continue. So they did nothing. Learned helplessness. The dogs had to be taught over time that there's nothing you can do. You are helpless. So stop trying. Just lay down and whimper. 
I think we've done this to our kids. In a, in a concerted effort, a, a effort with good intentions to make kids feel good about themselves, to make sure they have a high self-esteem and plenty of trophies, we've taken from them the ability to help themselves, right? We've taught them to be helpless. The adults will take care of everything. Nothing's your fault. And you're either a precious, amazing snowflake or a victim of an unjust system. But either way, there's nothing you can do about it. Lay down and whimper. This is not, this is not a value that, that built America. Helplessness. Right? Helplessness is not an American thing. We've, we, we've, we've never had that concept of helplessness. Never. I don't think human beings have that. I, I, I don't think that's a, an innate, inherent aspect of being a human, being helpless. God has blessed us with the ability uh, to change our environment, not to lay down and whimper. But I think this is what we've created, and it has no place in America. It shouldn't. We've got to take one more break. I want to come back and tell the story of Tim Elmore. He's the founder of a, of a nonprofit called Growing Leaders. And he recognized this a while back of this generational shift where kids want instant gratification. And he's teaching kids how to become leaders and really parents how to raise kids to be leaders in this world because it's different and it's not good. No one. So we look back on what built America. We look back at the values that built America. Helplessness isn't one of them. No one's going to look back in 100 years at this time period and be like, thank goodness everyone is so helpless. That's, that's really what made America great in the year 2100, is how helpless people were in the year 2015. There's no way. But that's what we're being turned into. And it's a natural, uh, or it's an unnatural result of a very intentional thing. We'll tell the rest of the story next. one 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. Slater Radio on the uh, the tweet machine. So, in wrap up this point here, uh, Tim Elmore, founder of a nonprofit called Growing Leaders, his whole mission is to teach parents how to uh, reach this generation that that uh, is is all about instant gratification. So he tells a story of a college freshman who got a C minus on her first college test, had a meltdown in the class, called her mom, and mom demanded to talk to the professor immediately. Like, what? And of course, the professor declined. There is an uh, employer recruiter told the story of a, of a potential employee who uh, was on an interview talking to the boss, potential boss. And told the boss that she would have his job in 18 months. It took him 20 years to get that job. And she's going to have it in 18 months? Like, what, do you, what is going on? So four things that uh, 
that Tim focuses on. Four things that we've told our kids last 20 years or so. We've told them to dream big. We've told them you're special. We've told them everything's going to be okay. And we've told them that the most important thing is to be happy. Let's run through them real quick. So we told our kids to dream big. What's the problem with that? Well, now the small acts seem insignificant. Little things seem insignificant now because I'm all, it's all about dreaming big, right? So that for the person who was in the job interview, like it's all about me being the boss here, but it's not about me waking up early to learn more about the product or whatever it is that leads to me becoming the boss. I'm just, I'm just going to dream it. I'm not going to do the little things that it takes. We told kids that they're special for no reason. So now they don't, they don't have to be, uh, you know, they don't have to show excellent character or incredible skill to demand special treatment. So kids assume that they don't have to do anything to be special. Can I vent about one thing real quick here? I'm going to vent. At risk of getting in trouble. I'm going to throw it out there. So I was perusing the interwebs the other day. And as everyone knows, and I'm proud to say, big fan of Taylor Swift. I like Taylor Swift. You're gonna, you're gonna, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? I like Taylor Swift. I value her. I love the things she does for kids. I love the charities she works for. I love um, she is a good role model for kids, dresses appropriately, good music, great concert. Like I, lo- I love her. She's great. She does excellent work across the board. Big fan of Taylor Swift. Big supporter. I wish her all the best. So I saw some picture of her on, online dancing with some boy who's like 12. And I was like, what's this about? So I clicked in. And apparently this kid, he's like 12. He's famous on YouTube or he's celebrity, whatever, for dancing to Taylor Swift song. He just dances. He just goes crazy running around the room dancing to Taylor Swift. So he was on Ellen, the Ellen show dancing so i watched this and i watched the kid just spin around jumping up and down to a taylor swift song and then ellen comes over and goes oh you're wonderful you're amazing you're so good and i'm like no he's not like i don't want to be i don't want to show that on i don't want to be a jerk to the 12 year old but like no that wasn't amazing at all. And even the kid admits there's no routine here. He just he's running around. He's objectively he's not a good dancer. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Why why are we so why are we letting this kid up because he's running around? I don't, I don't want you to think I'm picking on a 12-year-old. I'm picking on a culture and the adults who would put this kid on national TV and tell him how wonderful he is at dancing when he's not he wasn't he literally wasn't doing anything. Do you know what I'm trying to say? It's not like he was even trying to do like dance moves. And he wasn't good. He just wasn't doing anything. I was like, what is going on? How is this? And I think the other day, and the reason I'm venting about it now is because I think just yesterday I saw, I think also on Ellen, they had a kid who was a good dancer. And it's like, oh, like this kid is special. He deserves recognition. But the other kid doesn't. So (laughs) what's going on? And it's because we tell all kids that they're special. Did that come across like I'm mocking a 12-year-old? I really don't want it to. Am I okay? Are you with me? Do you know what I was trying to do there? Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. So anyway, we tell kids that they're special no matter uh, if they are or not. Uh, 
we tell kids that everything's going to be okay. Like we give kids all this comfort. They, they have no concept of delayed gratification. And uh, we've also made happiness the central goal in our kids' life, as opposed to happiness being the byproduct of a meaningful life. Right? The goal of life is to discover your gifts and your talents and to use those for others. Then you'll be happy. You don't search for happiness. You search for ways to serve others. Then you'll be happy. Very different. And we've flipped that when it comes to our kids. Okay. Why am I bringing all this up? What does this have to do with the shooting in Oregon? Because this is what started this conversation. My point is it's a strange time we live in. We have to make it right with our family first. And I think it's important to know which way the tide is going so that we can swim you know, perpendicular to it. So what this has to do with the shooting in Oregon about um, we're talking about uh, how only one guy tried to stop the shooter. And of course, he was the army veteran. One person tried to stop the shooter. One eight at eight nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show on the blaze radio network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders, one 933 Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. And my big argument in this hour is that we, we are a culture now of learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. We're told to sit by, stand by. You can't do it. Right? Just, just don't even try. Wait for authorities you know, I mean, like Congress will pass a bill to make it all better. I think we're being trained, we're being deprogrammed from what our natural inclination is, and that is to help, to serve, to solve, to end, to stop someone from from murdering other people. But in the end, only one person did. How can that be? All right. So John Nolte asks uh, a question here. He goes on a little thought experiment. Now, disclaimer, he is not suggesting, and neither am I, that anyone actually attack journalists. This is merely a thought experiment. But John says, you know, there's a lot of shootings in schools lately. Twelve over the last three years. A lot of of instances of, of people going into schools to commit mass murder. Think about this. Now, I know you know this, but it's important to really make sure we, we sit on this for a second. These are school shootings. Why are these mass murderers attracted to schools as opposed to anywhere else? Seriously, why, why, why is there not a rash of county fair shootings or art museum shootings or gym shootings or even mall shootings or bakery shootings? What, what, like, why school shootings? And it's because kids and schools 
but the kids in them, are the most vulnerable. Evil preys on the most vulnerable. We won't go down the abortion tangent here, but we easily could. Evil preys on the most vulnerable. By, by the way, the uh, Charleston shooter, the guy who shot up, uh, the, the, who killed the people in the uh, church, he was going to go to a college. His former roommate said he talked about killing people at, at a college, but he knew it would be harder to do. In other words, he didn't want to fight because there might be someone with a gun there. These murderers target the most vulnerable. Now, obviously, the thing to do is to make these places less vulnerable. Deter the would-be shooter. Make schools the least vulnerable place. But, of course, that's out of the question because guns are evil. So the president's right. In the end, we do nothing and we go through the same routine over and over and over again. Nothing changes. And by nothing changes, I mean schools are still vulnerable, full of our most vulnerable. So here's the thought experiment that John throws out there. He says, what if instead of these 12 mass murderers targeting schools, what if they targeted journalists? Now, we're not saying people should go with me here. But if instead instead of targeting elementary schools, what if these mass murderers went to newspaper and magazine offices and television stations and cable news headquarters? What if instead of this it being routine that a murderer killed a bunch of kids, what if it was routine that a murderer killed a bunch of journalists in a newsroom? And John Nolte's point here is that if this were the case, then there then the national debate would be very different than it is right now. Pretty sure that if this was the case, these journalists would not be sitting by helplessly waiting for Congress to pass federal gun laws. Right? Pretty sure they wouldn't be talking about the need to have a national dialogue. Pretty sure they would just arm up themselves. Pretty sure that journalists would carry or hire more security. I'm pretty sure there would be a lot more focus on how individuals in this industry could protect themselves and others around them. But instead, the threat isn't against journalists. It's against this generic school children, schools, or whatever, and nothing changes. Do you see what I'm saying? Because the threat is against kids, We're like, like no common sense measure is allowed because we have to remain helpless because if we're helpless, then we seek people who can help. And that of course is always going to be the government. That's, th- that's the purpose of this. Imagine how the national dialogue would be different if journalists were the targets of madmen. And imagine If instead of every school having a sign that says all weapons are prohibited on these premises, imagine if the sign said staff may be armed and trained. Any attempt to harm children will be met with deadly force. It's amazing. These cowards don't want to fight. They don't want to fight. I say we give it to them. And the people in charge want us to be helpless. And I say no longer. 1-800-760-KFMB, Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. On the Blaze Radio uh, yesterday, time on gun control. And 
I think it was John who called in and said, why aren't we doing just common sense things when it comes to making schools less vulnerable? And, and we can do these things like tomorrow. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, why don't some teachers, if they want, carry pepper spray? If they want, we don't have to, but, you know, if they want to, why not? What's the problem? Um, why can't we have the locks in classrooms stronger, perhaps, in case there's an active shooter? Like, we don't need to arm, you know, Mrs. Uh, what, who was your youngest teacher you remember in school? Mrs. Shank was my kindergarten. Do, uh, Mrs. Seal was my preschool teacher. Wow, do we need Mrs. Seal to be carrying a bazooka in class? Like, no, no. I don't, and she doesn't need to be carrying an AR-15 around when she's teaching uh, little Eric how to color. Eric's a handful, though. That's true. It may have kept him a little more in line, but that's that's a different conversation. Uh, but there's something we can do that could perhaps protect kids in case. There's something to make them a little less vulnerable, isn't there? Got to be a couple of things. And I know there are veterans out there who are unemployed who could use a gig uh, and would love working at a school, uh, protecting the kids there, because that, that's a true warrior's heart is to protect children. I mentioned earlier that, uh, I mentioned brass knuckles. I actually forget the context. I think I was making a similar argument. Like, why can't people just carry around? You know, everyone should be carrying around something like that. And I got a tweet. Someone said that brass knuckles are illegal in California. I didn't even know it. And sure enough, yeah. You can't have any, here it is, any instrument made of metal partially of metal, which is worn for purposes of offense or defense in or on the hand and which either protects the wearer's hand while striking a blow or increases the force of impact from the blow. I don't know what the penalty of this is. But what, like, what a perfect scenario. Like My wife, I want her to carry brass knuckles. She has pepper spray. I want her to carry brass knuckles. Why would you deny me that? How, how can you deny my wife that? That is outrageous. So I saw some brass knuckles online that have like two pointy parts on them. So you take, take a, throw those things on, get the guy in the neck with them, put it on your keychain, swing around, get him in the neck, done. Nope. Not allowed. Not allowed in California. Unbelievable how they disarm us. Huh. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two... You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Yesterday, I had, I believe it was uh, two days ago, excuse me, two days ago, I had the honor of speaking with someone who I just, I, I esteem highly, um, Dr. Thomas Sowell. And, and I wanted to replay uh, our conversation here um, in its entirety. Because I asked him, or, or my producer asked him, if, if, 
if we could talk for two segments. And he said, well, it depends how the first segment goes. And then I asked him after the first segment if he'll stick around, and he said yes, he would. So that means we got the thumbs up from Thomas Sowell, and that made me very happy. So I wanted to share our conversation here with you with the great Dr. Thomas Sowell. And what an honor it is that uh, Thomas, uh, Thomas Sowell is with us right now. His newest book, Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, an International Perspective. Thomas Sowell, sir, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time, sir. Well, thank you for having me. So before we talk about economics, I, I want to ask you about a footnote I read on page 237 of your new book. You said that you've had a meal at the Waldorf Astoria. You've eaten at restaurants in Paris, even in the White House. But what was the greatest meal of your life, sir? Oh, it was a condition, an orange soda, that I had down on the Lower East Side back in 1949 when I, had a, I was going through a dire period. I just had to pawn my one suit in order to get money to eat. And uh, I'd be eating all those fancy places many years later, but nothing ever topped that condition orange soda. Why so? Why was that the best ever? I was hungry. <laughs> more, more, I have a feeling hungry more so than just uh, in your stomach. You were hungry for something else, too. Well, but, I, but food was uppermost in my mind. I once saw a billboard that said, the hungry demand justice. And I thought, I've been hungry. I didn't demand justice. I wanted food. When, is it true that you were the first person in your family to uh, go beyond the sixth grade? Yes. And I didn't, I didn't realize that myself, except that when I was promoted to the seventh grade, there was such a fuss made over it. Really? And, and, some, and I was puzzled, and finally someone said, now you've gone further than any of us. Wow, what would you think of that at the time? Well, I was just taken aback, but of course, as I've gotten older, I realized that... Uh, this was one one of the things that they, they were determined that I should have an education, the, the education that they knew they had never gotten and would never have a chance to get. Why why did they not have a chance to get it? They were poor. They were in the South. Hmm. The uh, the schools the schools were whites weren't all that great, uh, but the Southern schools at that time were uh, when a, when a kid came out of the South, it was common to set him back a year. So when I came out of the South, I was I'd been promoted to the fourth grade. And they were uh, prepared to put me back in the third grade. Wow. I made such a to-do about it. I went to see the principal, and the, the principal allowed me to take the, to, to take the fourth grade. Wow. It, it was actually a mistake. It was a very that was probably the hardest year uh, in school of my life because the, the education I had gotten down south was just not up to snuff, even to the standards in Harlem. Now, all that being said, you still didn't graduate high school, right? That's right. Why not? Uh, again, there were all kinds of problems that had arisen at home, and I simply uh, left home at the age of 17 uh, and went on my own. <laughs> With what motivation? To do what? To do something or just because you had nothing else to do or what? No, because it was impossible for me to f- get my education, uh, to stay in high school and, and, and actually learn something because of the turmoil in the home, and mm-hmm. therefore I left home. And, and, of course, I had to take such jobs as would, uh, would, would, would looking for someone who was, had no, 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 no education, no skills, yeah. and no experience. Like, I discovered there was no great demand for such people. <laughs> what kind of jobs did you take on? Oh, I was a uh, delivery boy for a, a garment factory in the garment district. Uh, I, one time I was a Western Union messenger. Uh, and eventually the highest I got uh, for those first three years was to taking a very uh, get a semi-skilled job in a machine shop. Wow. Did you ever think throughout that that you would ultimately achieve all that you had today? 
I had hoped I had I had high hopes, but uh, high hopes without any uh, money uh, d- 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 are not, is not always encouraging. Yep. Uh, so you talk about turmoil in the home, talked about a bad education. Um, and the reason I, I wanted to start off talking about these, sir, is you should have been living in poverty the whole rest of your life. How did you not? Circumstances. The biggest circumstance was in an earlier and earlier time, better times. Uh, there were members of the family who were very concerned about my getting an education. They they introduced me to a, a boy who was from a much more educated family, who then introduced me to a public library, which I'd not I'd never been into when I, at the time I was nine years old. I had no idea there were any such things as elite high school like Stuyvesant. But this kid went on to Stuyvesant, and therefore I knew something about it, and could go and could you know uh, orient myself. But uh, uh, you know the, the the objective existence of opportunities means nothing if you don't know what those opportunities are mm. or why they're opportunities. What do you mean, why they're opportunities? Well, I, when when when, when uh, this kid Eddie Map took took me to a public library, I saw no I saw no great momentous thing about it. It was just a building with a whole lot of books, and I realized I didn't have any money to buy books. I don't even know why we're there. <laughs> You know, and, and he comes and thank heaven he was very patient, and uh, with some under his persuasion, with some reluctance, I got a library card because I had the feeling someone's going to come around and ask me for money for these books. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that opened up a door, but I had no conception at the time that that was opening up a door on a new world. Oh, so you had no idea why you should go through the door? No, I I, I thought it was good to have some books to read at home. Huh. So what did that do for you, as you look back on that? Oh well, it, well first of all, it got me into, into, into being a reader, uh, which is which is a, you know, a regular thing, and seeing well, how much I could learn from reading and so forth. And so I acquired a taste for that. And then and later on, uh, when I finished elementary school, it, it assigned me to a, a, a junior high school in a bad part of East Harlem. And my friend, the same guy who took me to the library, uh, pointed out to me that I didn't have to go to that school, uh, that if I wanted to, I could persuade them to, to let me uh, go to a different school. And I did that. And so I, I then trans- transferred to a, to a different school that had higher standards and so forth. Yeah. But no, I, I, I knew nothing about such things until he told me. Interesting. Was, was there any book that you read in your childhood in particular that stands out that uh, really made an impact on you? Not Not really. Uh, it's just I, I think it was the fact that I was reading and I acquired a taste for learning from books and so on. Uh, and then and then once I moved into a school with higher standards, uh, by this time, uh, well, my, my, but I think the people in the family who wanted me to get an education, uh, they were pushing me to do that and then trying to explain to me, you know, how, how that would affect my future life. But, you know, you're, you're nine years old. I mean, adulthood is some far-off place like Tahiti or in Antarctica, you know. And so unless you have some adults there telling you, no, this, what you're doing today is going to impact what you can do the rest of your life. So who were those, those, the biggest mentors in your life growing up? Oh, I guess uh, Bertie. Uh, she was, uh, I mean, I was adopted. I didn't know it at the time. Really, Bertie was was uh, would would have been my sister in the in in the adopted families, and so she was she was from really from 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 infancy on, and as I look back on it now, I realize too uh, that she learned late in life she was a very 
uh, impressed with my father. And, uh, and he died just two months before I was born. And mm. so I'm sure that a lot of her feelings toward him were transferred to me. Wow. So I, I ask all this, these questions, sir, and, and we'll get to the book, I promise. Um, because I just look back on your life and, and where you came from and what you've been able to accomplish. And, and I, I like to ask this question to uh, impressive people um, and get their perspective because it's a difficult concept, I think. What is the American dream? Well, I guess it's the, it's the opportunity to move on up, uh, which is fine in itself, but there has to be the desire and there has to be the knowledge. You know, that one of the great success stories in New York were the very poor uh, Eastern European Jews who, who came in in the late 19th century. But they came from a culture with, with, with centuries of emphasis upon reading and intellectual activity and stuff like that. Now, they had very few opportunities in Eastern Europe compared to New York. But when they got to New York, there was this whole system of free public libraries, and they just flooded into those. And then their children uh, then uh, moved into uh, elite schools, high schools like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. Uh, and, 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 and from there, they went on to high-quality uh, colleges, uh, free, like City College of New York. And, uh, and, and it was, it was, it was, that was a boon. But all those things were there f- for me as well, but I wasn't aware of them, much less aware of the implications of them for my whole life, not when I was a little kid. And that's true of, of many, if not most, uh, other groups, other besides the Jews, and then in the 21st century, uh, some Asians. But there were all kinds of groups came in. I remember uh, an Irish-American uh, man who became an internationally renowned scholar and at a social occasion, he said that when he was reached uh, college age, he wasn't even thinking about college. But somebody else, recognizing his great abilities, urged him to go to college. And from there, he rose to the top of his profession. But had there been not, not, not been that person, he would have been just probably a, a, good, a very good uh, auto mechanic someplace. Mm. All right, I want to stop it right here. Uh, we'll, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll hear more from, uh, from Thomas Sowell. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater hey slater crusaders we're playing here a um, an interview that, uh, that i recorded the other day with uh, the great thomas soul let's pick it up from here our is our culture today is our country today lacking those mentors or the, or the the understanding of the importance of those mentors you've spoken of so far some people have them. I think, I think that someone growing up in the, in the same places where I grew up in Harlem ages ago did, would not have as much opportunity as I had. The schools themselves, for example, were, 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 were much better in that era. I remember I had a, a niece who uh, was complaining in later life about how she had messed up her life. And she said, uh, 
I went to the same school you went to, Uncle Tommy. And I said, no, you didn't. You went to the same building I went wow. to. Wow. It wasn't the same school anymore. Wow. Worse today. Oh, absolutely. No question. That's amazing. Harlem in what year? What years were you there? The 40s. Harlem in the 40s. You would think, sir, that that would be just, the, just a travesty of a, of a school. Well, you know, actually, one of the, one of the research projects I ran many uh, decades later, I, I, I surveyed the test scores in that school on a series of Harlem schools, really, compared to a group of uh, schools on the Lower East Side of New York. There was virtually no difference. Come on. There, and some, and some uh, tests at some t- times, the Harlem school came out a, a, little ahead, a little ahead of the Lower East Side school. But then six months later, the Lower East Side would be a, a little ahead of the Harlem school. But by and large, there was, no, there was no such gap as we see today. Wow. So how have we come to accept I, – I, I see this in a lot of different things. We look at something like education, and we say, oh, well, this is the way, A, it's always been, and this is the way it has to be and always will be. Why do we accept things like, for instance, the discrepancy between Harlem and other places in, this, in the state – in New York now. Why do we accept that? Because we, 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 we've lived with it for a long time. Not many people are bothered to study history, and not, and not, not many people have the time to devote to research. Uh, and and give, Washington is even more dramatic. When, 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 when uh, Earl, Chief Justice Earl Warren said in Brown v. Board that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal, within walking distance of where he said that, there was an all-black school which sent off a higher percentage of its students to college than any white public school in the city. Uh, and, had, and the school had been like this for generations. But he was utterly ignorant of it, and he made these statements that sounded good but really had no basis. That very same school, incidentally, uh, today sends about half as many students off to college as it did back in 1954. Amazing. Why? What, not, not just that school, but why? Why? And let's talk about the blacks in, in general. Yes. Why? <laughs> how, how could government systems create such a dramatic change in black culture and families? Well, well with the family, with the welfare state, if you, if you start subsidizing teenage dropout girls to have babies, uh, by the time their teenagers have dropped out, they will discover, as I discovered uh, uh, earlier, that there's no great demand for that for that kind of uh, inexperienced uh, labor, and so uh, having babies and being supported on welfare is probably their best option. And that has had that drastic of an effect over time. But that's what the numbers say. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, b- b- in the late uh, 20th century, 52 percent of black kids were being raised by a mother alone. About 4% were being raised by a father alone, and another 11% were being raised with neither mother nor father taking care of them. That was, that was totally... Uh, if you go back into the 1920s, for example, 3% of the uh, black kids in New York were being raised by a teenage mother. Amazing. 3%, that's it. Yeah, that's it. <sighs> let, let me... So free market economics, which you and, and, I, and I am a student of yours in this field, why is that often portrayed as having lack of compassion? Because it doesn't give people things for free. And uh, to, to the left, giving people things for free is, is a good thing. 
it, if people get things for free, they don't develop their own human capital. Mm-hmm. In other words, what's really valuable is the human capital. If you give them things produced by other people's human capital, that gets them nowhere. They don't move up the ladder. Even if they have lots of electronic devices to play with, lots of television to watch and so forth, none of that prepares them to move on up. Develop human capital, like you did when you went to the library. Yes. That's it. That, 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 that's a major part of it. Yeah. But it's also true of nations. Uh, Spain, in, in its what they call its golden age in the 16th century, they received gold and silver from the Western Hemisphere literally by the ton. They were enormous, the elites at least, were enormously uh, uh, prosperous, lived in luxury and idleness. They bought things from other countries around Europe and elsewhere, uh, but they didn't develop the human capital of the mm-hmm. Spanish people. They developed disdain for work and so on. Wow. They exported human capital when they, when they, uh, they, they expelled the Jews en masse. Uh, and then a century later, they expelled the Moriscos, who also had many kinds of uh, skills. And they, and, you know, because they, they had no uh, uh, regard for that. Uh, and yet, when the, when the gold and silver ran out, they had nothing. And, to the, and, and in the year 2000, for example, uh, the per capita income of Spain was slightly below that of black Americans. Wow, of all of Spain. Huh? Of all of Spain. Yes. Wow. Amazing. Sir, and, and this is touched on, uh, obviously, in, in the book Wealth, Poverty, and Politics. I want to take one last stop here. Uh, we'll come back. We'll, we'll finish off our interview with the great Thomas Sowell. one 888 Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being here. We're having a wonderful Saturday. Two days ago, I recorded an interview. It was such an honor. Um, it was hard to believe I was, I was talking to him, to, to be honest. Uh, but I recorded an interview uh, with uh, the great Thomas Sowell. We played the first uh, two-thirds of, of uh, our conversation in the last couple segments. Uh, I just want to wrap up our conversation right here. Here's Thomas Sowell. And I love this line here in your book. You say, the enormous disparity of achievement between differences of human existence uh, between uh, different eras of human existence dwarfs disparities between rich and poor in the world today. Um, is income inequality inherently bad? No. Um, it, it's not inherently good either. It's, it's just <laughs> one of those facts of life. I, I'm sure that the hunter-gatherers did not have nearly as much income disparities as we have today. But I don't know, think anybody would want to become one of the uh, poverty-stricken hunger, hunter bear, hunter gatherers, wandering around all day trying to find food here and there. Uh, when you think of what what you can possibly achieve by redistributing income, it is pathetically small compared to what you can achieve by increasing the total output. I mean, if you go back to the uh, data at the beginning of the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century. Fewer than 10% of the homes in America had electric lights. Wow. Oh, 
virtually every home in America had electric lights somewhere by the 1980s or 1990s. You know, you're not going to achieve that by fighting over the existing amount of output. So what fuels it? Is it envy? Is that it? A lot of what you can envy, but I think resentment more so than even than envy. Oh, what do you mean? Well, uh, I mean, I, I envy Michael Jordan since he plays such great uh, basketball and since I was such a total lo- lo- lockout <laughs> loss at basketball. But I don't resent him. I'm not mad at Michael Jordan. You know, I mean, I, 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 I love to watch him play and so forth. Mm. But, uh, but they stir up resentment. And I think, I think intellectuals are the source of this. I don't know of any country in which the hatred of people who are doing better has spontaneously arisen from, from the masses of the people or, or from the poor. It's almost always from the intellectuals and from, from the elites of one sort or another. Wow, that's an interesting statement. Um, can you give us another historical example of that, of well, that resentment? Well, uh, if the poor people around the world were as worked up about uh, income inequality in America as the intellectuals are, they wouldn't be trying to come here from all over the world, more so than any other country. I mean, there are plenty of countries in the world that have less inequality than we do. Mm. If that's what they're looking for, they'd go there. They're not looking for that. The guy wants to be able to give his family things he couldn't give where he is, and therefore he comes to America. And he's not worried about how much money Bill Gates has. That's Bill Gates' life. He's looking out for his life and his family. I love, um, I'm fascinated by cultural differences in people. We've talked about it a lot with the Iran deal. And we just talked about how American and Iranian negotiating tactics are just different. We're just not good or bad. Just, we're just different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love your book looks at cultural differences in people. I feel like we don't acknowledge that for some reason. So give us some examples of how different types of people are different. Well, one of one of the crucial things is honesty, which is not which is a moral issue. Obviously, people don't realize how much it is an economic issue. I mean, people, investors don't want to invest in places where where either the the, the government is dishonest or the employees are going to be pilfering the the, the goods. You know, mm-hmm. for example, studies have been done leaving wallets with money in them in various public places scattered around town. Uh, and with identifi- identification in the, in, the, in the wallet. And the question is, how many of those wallets get returned? Well, if you go to uh, a place like Oslo, Oslo uh, Norway, uh, all 12 out of 12 were returned. Uh, you, when they left these uh, wallets in Lisbon, uh, only one out of 12 oh, wow. got returned. And that one was returned by somebody who was a visitor from the Netherlands. <laughs> now, if you're an investor... Are you more likely to invest in Oslo or in Lisbon? Wow. Okay. Okay. So now we have to bridge into America. What are American values that have led to economic prosperity? Well, these vary among groups, but I guess one of the one of the one of the values is simply the the idea of progress. That people don't just want to live the way their parents live; they want to live better, and therefore they put in a lot of work. A lot of this is inherited, really, from the from the British before, from from whom much of the American uh, uh, culture came, but also people from Germany and other places. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are other people who come from different parts of the world uh, who are happy to just sit here and uh, live off the American taxpayer. So this is fascinating because we're so ethnocentric that 
we think progress, that it's not unique to us. Oh, there are people out there who are doing their darndest to tell us America is not exceptional. You couldn't find a more exceptional country than America. You know, when the, now when the United States was created in 1776, all the governments of the world, around the world were autocratic governments. You know, they were king. Their, 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 their first thought was to make George Washington king. Mm-hmm. It's only the fact that George Washington didn't want to be king that he thought that, that, was, that was not the kind of government we should have. Yeah. But that, that, was, that was unique in that time. People were aware of it. And more than that, they were aware of what an experiment it was and that it was a dangerous experiment. Mm, why dangerous? Because when, when you have pe- the public voting on who will be their leaders, everything depends upon how, much, how serious, how knowledgeable, and how wise the public is. Wow. And as, as time has gone on and we've loosened the requirements for voting, especially lowering the age to 18, I mean, I would have raised it to 30. <laughs> because people, there are millions of young people who have not yet uh, even had experience taking care of themselves, being independent uh, by the time they're in their mid-20s. How, to, so to go back to the idea of progress being an American value, like where are there countries and people around the world where progress is not? Like that's so bizarre to think about because it's so ingrained in me and us. Yes. Uh, actually, this, this was a value that was uncommon you know, in Western society wow. in the Middle Ages. People did what custom demanded. And only, the, only in later times did this evolve into the notion that we can make great progress if we devote ourselves to new ways of doing things. Part of that comes out of geography, out of uh, contact with other people in many parts of the world and realizing that the way things are done here is not the way they're done elsewhere. And Mm. So we can pick and choose things from other parts of the world Ah. that will help us. All right, and this is outlined in the book. Yes, uh, I mean, even such um, uh, recreational things as chess. Chess didn't originate in, in, in Europe. It's, it's, it's common in, in Western society, but it originated in India. Yeah. Really? So we took that. We just said, we, this is a good thing. We're going to take it. Absolutely. Well, the numbering system that we use, uh, we don't use Roman, Roman numerals were indigenous to the Western civilization, but we use Arabic numerals, so-called, but actually the Arabs got it from India. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, sir, I hate we got to go. I could talk, obviously, forever with you. It's such an honor. Um, real quick, um, is there something that you're hearing amongst the presidential candidates that you hear and you cringe because it's so just irritating to you, or that you say, oh, finally, thank goodness someone's finally saying this? Either one. The, the, the cringing, the cringing is, is far more widespread. <laughs> I bet the protectionist. I was going to say, I bet the protectionist tariffs drive you nuts. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, protectionist tariffs are supposed to, to preserve jobs. They kill jobs. But you, but but yeah, people aren't going to stop and think it through long enough to understand. But that. they're putting, they're opening up the factory in Mexico, Thomas. So we got to put a ten thousand dollar tariff so we prevent them from going. Oh, to Mexico. it's insane! There, when you think of all the Americans who are who are working in Toyota plants and plants and plants producing all kinds of Japanese cars in the United States, mo- most of the the Toyotas in the United States are made in the United States. That's amazing. Yeah, in the southern states, not the union states. Absolutely. And people who talk about 
you know, saving jobs. No, no. The re- how, how come the, the, the Japanese, when they came here, didn't go to places like Detroit, where there's already a labor force used to making cars? Mm. Because Detroit has a set of policies and union activity that, that makes it very uh, unprofitable to locate in Detroit. And so you, you, for a while you can, you can uh, impose union de- uh, demands on General Motors, but after a while you find that General Motors is losing sales to, other, to Toyota and Honda and others. Thomas Sowell, there's way more of this wisdom in the newest book, Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, an International Perspective. Go by it. Sir, it's, it's really just been a dream of mine to, to have a chance to chat with you, and I appreciate you taking some time. I hope we can do it again. I had such an awesome time talking with him. You may have noticed a couple times um, I, uh, I stopped talking after he said something because I'm so used to listening to him speak. That when I, when I heard him talking, I went into listen mode as opposed to have a conversation mode because I'm not, I couldn't. It was hard to believe I was having a conversation with with Thomas Soul. So I apologize for those long breaks. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed it. That full interview uh, is on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. This is the Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Crusader, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just. I'm very. I'm very uh, excited that we got to talk to Thomas. So, as I was saying, like, I've heard, I've listened to so many of his speeches and whatnot. When I was talking to him, I forgot that I was having a conversation. It was very. It was very strange. And he stopped talking after he answered something. I said, "Oh, oh, oh I have to respond." It was a long pause, and I was like, "Oh, he's waiting for me now." I don't. I'm not used to that when it comes to when I when I, when I hear uh, Thomas Soul talk. Um, a couple hours ago, we, we talked about um, something the Pope said about materialism. He said, socialists, this, I'm sorry, this is Pope John the 23rd. He was the Pope in 1958 to 1963. He said, it's the um, socialists who are all about materialism. And he said, no Catholic could subscribe even to moderate socialism. That's funny how things have changed. But it wasn't just that Pope. Um, let me see. I got a couple quotes here from from other popes. Uh, this is Pope John the Third. No, that was those those. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah. So I just read the Pope John Paul the Twenty Third earlier. Uh, he's the one who said there's no Catholic could subscribe even to moderate socialism because it's about materialism. Uh, this is Pope Paul the Sixth, nineteen sixty two to nineteen seventy eight. He said too often. Christians attracted by socialism tend to idealize it in terms which, apart from anything else, are very general. A will for justice, solidarity, and equality. They refuse to recognize the limitations of the historical socialist movements, which remain conditioned by the ideologies from which they originated. In other words, so many Christians have been fooled by the language haven't looked at the at what it actually is. John Paul II, 1978 to 2005, he says, socialism considers the individual person simply as an element 
a molecule within the social organism so that the good of the individual is completely subordinated to the functioning of the socioeconomic mechanism. A person who is deprived of something he can call his own and of the possibility of earning a living through his own initiative comes to depend on the social machine and on those who control it. This makes it much more difficult for him to recognize his dignity as a person and hinders progress towards the building of an, of an authentic human community. Gosh, socialism denies or, or eliminates the dignity of each, peop- of each person. It's true. I wish people talked like that today. I wish conservatives could make that argument um, on a more national stage. Uh, one more here. Pope Benedict, uh, 2005 to 2013. The state which would provide everything, absorbing everything into itself, would ultimately become a mere bureaucracy incapable of gov- uh, guaranteeing the very thing which the suffering person, every person needs, namely loving personal concern. We do not need a state which regulates and controls everything, but a state which, in accordance with the principle of solidarity, generously acknowledges and supports initiatives arising from the different social forces. The church is one of those living forces. Those are the last four popes we've had. And our current pope speaks differently about socialism and about environmentalism, which is the new form of it, right? Um, let's move forward with the economic principles as so beautifully outlined by our last guest, Thomas Sowell. Those principles with, it, with moralist language, empathy, taking care of the most vulnerable, true equality, right? These terms with our principles behind them can't lose. And that's our goal. That's what we're doing here together. And that's why I'm so glad you're here. Slater Radio on Twitter. I hate our show's over already, but uh, uh, thank you for being here. And uh, we'll see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.